Welcome to the podcast of the NSF Convergence to Epistasis Collaboration. The NSF Convergence program attempts to solve vexing research problems involving the transdisciplinary integration of knowledge and methods and expertise from different disciplines. The idea is to form novel frameworks to catalyze scientific discovery and innovation. NSF has funded us to collaborate to understand epistasis, the key for genotype to phenotype mapping. I'm Jeffrey Townsend, Elihu Professor of Biostatistics and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology here at Yale University. And in this podcast, I'll be talking with Ron Levy, Laura Carnell Professor of Biophysics and Computational Biology in the Departments of Chemistry, Physics, and Biology at Temple University. He's a fellow of the American Academy of the Advancement of Science, a Guggenheim Award winner, and will be featured for his many accomplishments in a symposium at the American Chemical Society meeting in the spring of 2020. Ron, welcome to the NSF Convergence to Epistasis podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Ron, I'm really excited to talk with you today because I just read your recent research paper published in the journal eLife. It's entitled Epistasis and Entrenchment of Drug Resistance in HIV-1 Subtype B. So I think it would be really nice if we could get to the details that are in there. But let's just first, at the very highest level, talk about what that title means. What is this paper about? Then we'll talk a little bit about how you got there. And then maybe we'll try to get into the deepest details of what that paper says. So first of all, can you just tell me a little bit about actually HIV, I think, would be the thing to cover first. Like, what aspects of HIV does this paper regard? And can you start at the basic level where people will understand, you know, what HIV uh, relevance this might have? HIV is a scourge that set itself out on the population of the world in the early 1980s. And uh, at first, nobody knew what it was. Um, many people were dying. Gay people were dying. Uh, and through the 80s and into the 90s, more and more was learned about the cause of uh, AIDS. Because um, it was basically was, a death sentence. It was, it was basically it a death si sentence. And molecular biology and virology through the late 1980s and 90s, and I remember being on some of the NIH panels that funded some of the earliest groups that were looking into the science of AIDS and HIV, discovered that it was caused by a virus, AIDS was caused by a virus, the human immunodeficiency virus. It's a retrovirus, which means its genetic material is carried in RNA, which gets reverse transcribed back to DNA when it gets incorporated in human cells. And more and more has been learned about uh, HIV over the decades, and some very effective drugs have been developed uh, over the years. But over time, the virus, uh, being clever, uh, finds ways to develop resistance to these drugs. And what the paper is about that, I, um, that you're referring to that came out recently in eLife is our bioinformatic analysis of uh, aspects of drug resistance and, and how that manifests itself in the population of uh, human beings and what happens to the different key proteins that are involved in the life cycle of HIV that leads to drug resistance. So one of the things that I think that is maybe really important for everyone to understand, our listeners, is that HIV is a virus, first of all, but secondly, that it mutates extremely fast, right? So can you talk a little bit about that process or that generation of new variants of HIV and like why that's relevant to the project we're going to talk about now? Sure. It's perhaps the most intensively studied virus, and there are 
repositories uh, the, in the United States, the two important repositories, one is at um, Stanford University and the other one is at Los Alamos, are repositories of samples of the virus from populations that now extends perhaps almost 30 years. And you can sequence the virus. And if you look at the properties of viral proteins in drug-naive population, that is population that has not undergone antiretroviral therapy, you'll see certain kinds of patterns. And if you look at the so-called drug experience population, you'll see some rather different patterns of mutations that are induced by drug pressure. And our paper is about the issue of what mutations occur, how do we understand the importance of a drug resistance mutation and its interpretation, not just based on whether that mutation occurs or not, but what's happening at the rest of the sequence yeah. of that protein that affects whether that drug mutation is stable or not stable there. So can you just tell us what the uh, clinical significance of these drug resistance mutations is today? Because I know initially it was really important because with the very first therapies, resistance almost always came about. But as time has gone on, there's been a little more long-term sustainability of the treatment. But tell me the details of that. Well, that's true. There's combination therapy now. They have boxed it in, so to speak, uh, in a more effective way than they used to. But there's still drug resistance that occurs, and, and people still eventually find themselves, uh, the therapies are less effective than they used to be. But it's much longer term now than it used to be. But it's, it's, it's still an issue. <laughs> yeah, it's still an issue. It's very yes. important for us to understand yes. Yes. what these mutations are exactly. and what, the way I might put it, is what's the trajectory of evolution of these mutations over exactly. time? And is there some way we could forestall it with some kind yes. of... Yes. Let me back up just a little bit and how uh, I got into this for a few different reasons. But, but one reason I got into this was a long-term collaboration I've had with structural biologists at, at Rutgers University, where I used to uh, have a faculty appointment and was there for many years. Uh, let me uh, interrupt for just one second. So a structural biologist is someone who solves the structure, the molecular structure of proteins, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and uh, I have a colleague and uh, friend uh, who I work with over many years at, at Rutgers who was an expert in the structural biology of reverse transcriptase, one of the HIV proteins we can talk about it in a little while. Um, but through my collaborations with structural biologists working on HIV proteins and particularly reverse transcriptase, I became part of a center involving collaborations at multiple places, an NIH-funded so-called P50 center. And the name of that center is HIVE, and HIVE stands for HIV Interactions and Viral Evolution. Its base is Scripps Research Institute, but there are collaborating members at the University of Colorado, Harvard University, Emory University, Rutgers, and Temple. This has been ongoing now for eight years, and through that collaboration, I met a molecular biologist who was working on drug resistance, and there are primary mutations that lead to drug resistance, but those primary mutations tend to compromise the virus. And that compromise, uh, the virus finds some ways to enable that resistance mutation in a way that is not compromised because the best thing for the virus in terms of trying all kinds of possibilities is to have the, the mutations that leads 
to um, resistance without any kind of compromise. And the way this molecular biologist was looking at the problem is I have one primary mutation and I have an accessory mutation that rescues that primary mutation. That was the thought process. There were certain yeah. kinds of experiments, protein stability experiments, thinking about this kind of two at a time. I have one primary mutation, I have one accessory mutation. But in evolutionary biology, we call those compensatory com mutations. Yes, yes, so there's yes. just all these different terminologies in yes, science, but yes. I like to say as many of them as possible so yes, everyone understands yes. what we're talking about. Compensatory, accessory, uh, yes. yes. Um, so if you look at the evolution of the, of the virus you've, and, and you have a consensus sequence for, let's say, protease or, 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 or the primary proteins that are the targets for antiretroviral drugs, of which there are three primary ones now, uh, three primary targets. That's, the, that being the protease, pro the integrase, and the reverse transcriptase. Right. right. Okay. There are commercial drugs for, against each of those, and they're okay. given in combination. But if you look at the drug-experienced population and you sequence those proteins today, you don't find very many sequences that just have two mutations away from the consensus. The protein is evolving many, many mutations, 10 mutations, 15 mutations, 20 mutations, and more. You don't see 20 mutations away from the consensus uh, or the most probable sequence in the drug-naive population. Something's happening under drug pressure that's different from what the drug-naive population is experiencing. And understanding why sequences have these mutations that lead to drug resistance isn't really a process that involves one mutation that leads to drug resistance that is saved, if you will, by a single compensatory mutation. It's a much more complicated process. That's why the, the virus is searching out pathways to have many mutations that will stabilize the primary drug resistance mutation. And through our analysis, which is a combination of bioinformatics, we can talk about the bioinformatic aspects of this, but it's also machine learning and ways that computer scientists study pattern recognition. Yeah. We're using those techniques to figure out which patterns of mutations lead to stabilizing important primary drug resi resistance mutations and which don't. And, um, and I think the key thing in this paper, or the key tool that you're applying in this paper, are these models that allow you to consider not just a binary relationship between one mutation and another mutation and, and the evolution of those two things, but it's a broader, it's a way to look at two, not two, but not three, but not four, but looking at the entire sequence right. and trying to understand how the whole right. thing is evolving as an integrated whole. And that leads us back to the name we should, uh, of epistasis, which uh -huh. is the effect of a mutation cannot be understood by itself, but it depends on the sequence within which that mutation occurs. And you can understand that on many different levels. Uh, and that's really what our collaboration and collaborative grant is about, understanding the consequences of mutations occurring in the background, so to speak, sequence in which they occur at the level of a single protein, at the level of many proteins interacting, at the level of the whole genome, that's what we're working together on. Great. So can I wind back the timeline just a little bit and go back to that your first interactions with that molecular biologist? Who is who? We okay. should name them. Yes. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't finish the story there. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's 
his name is Bruce Torbett, uh -huh. and what he was doing was stability experiments, looking at melting temperatures or unfolding temperatures of proteins and saying, and, and this was a paper in Journal of Molecular Biology in 2011, in which he did confirm that primary resistance mutations led to a decreasing stability of the protein. And when you introduced, this was all in the laboratory, when you introduced a compensatory mutation, you could recover the, the stability that the original protein had. Yeah. Um, but it was around about that time that I became a partner or, or collaborator in the Hive Center, and I was talking with him, and I was interested in those results. But I was also recognizing that, in fact, in the drug experience population, very, very few samples only have one primary mutation and one a compensatory mutation. So there's got to be something more to the story than just that. And that's what led me on the, the road uh, to the work that you're referring to in those two papers, the, the eLife paper. So what were the stages in getting there? I mean, I, you know, so it's, I know it's probably a complex and long story, but I mean, but you now have this, these POTS models you're using. How did you get from, you know, there must be this extensive uh, interaction set that is going on of all these different mutations to like, how can we... Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a um, computational biophysicist with a training background in, in, in biological physics and, and as well as in computational chemistry. And I've always been interested in proteins, structural biology of proteins and the biological physics of proteins. And way back in the early 2000s, there were theoretical papers and people were thinking about problems, including people like David Baker, who we talked about earlier before the uh, podcast started, and, and a, a person named Ken Dill, who, and, and, and others talking about questions like, how many different amino acid types do you need to make a protein fold in their own way? And I had a paper very early on in the 2000s in, in actually some obscure, obscure journal that ended up having hundreds of citations to it that did some modeling of the consequences of decreasing the number of amino acid types from 20 to smaller than 20. So I, I, I had, although most of my work at that time was really structure-based, I was beginning to get interested in the early 2000s in, in looking at problems from a sequence-based perspective. So that, that's one thing. Uh, another thing is a, a part of our work um, using these so-called POTS models, these sequence covariation models, which we should talk about a little bit more, in another context in which we're, we're, we're back at some level into structural biology and trying to design inhibitors, which we hope will become drugs, uh, against um, a class of proteins, so-called kinases, that are involved in all kinds of signaling processes in the cell, in which the, the challenge there is that there are many kinases, there are about 500 kinases in, in your body and mine, um, and they're structurally similar in many ways. And one wants to design inhibitors that target one and not all the others. And, uh, I'm familiar with this because I work in cancer biology. <laughs> yes, of course, so, most of the people trying to design drugs in cancer biology are trying to interfere with these kinases. Yes, so. yes, exactly. <laughs> so we found another use for thinking about sequences and uh, the role they might play in distinguishing the properties of one kinase from another that ties back into structure, conformational propensities. So the tool that we're using is this so-called covariation model, this POTS model, which comes, it comes originally from condensed matter physics. And the ideas 
go back to something called an icing model in which we have spins on a lattice that cause magnetization and the, and the spins can either be aligned with the field or against the field. If this model has two states, that's an icing model. If the model has more than two states, there's, and it's not, the spins might be something else that we'll talk about in a second, let's say it has 20 states. And let's say that position, that, that spin position, actually is a position on a sequence in a protein. And each of those 20 possible states is one of the 20 possible amino acid types. We can build a model that is a model of what the sequence is and predicts many different kinds of properties about the fitness of the protein, about the structural propensities or conformational propensities of the protein. And one of the things one has been able to do, other labs and our lab as well, but um, the first work along these lines came from some other labs, Jose Anuchik and his collaborators, where they showed that these sequence-based models could predict contacts in proteins, protein-protein uh -huh. contacts. And we said, well, if they could predict protein-protein contacts, I let me step back even further than the 90s and say that I began my professional career, um, and I've been in computational biophysics uh, since... Um, around 1980, I began my professional career in the very earliest days of so-called molecular dynamics simulations of proteins. And I was among those group of people that sort of developed that technology. And, and that's the, a technology that allows you to actually look at the proteins, not as these fixed, you right. know, curled up, knotted right. set of strings. I mean, strings. for some, some long period of time, people thought, you know, there's a protein, it's, it's uh, what you see in the crystal structure, that's what it is. It's like uh, a lock and a key, and there's there, that's it. That's yeah. the whole story. But there were a leading-edge group of crystallographers. One of them was a person named Fred Richards, who used to be here and was a, a founder of the biophysics department here at Yale, who said, no, there's more to proteins than just that lock and key picture that you see. And Molecular dynamic simulations played a role in, in, in changing the viewpoint, along with many, many advances in NMR spectroscopy and crystallography and, and other techniques. But I, I want to bring it back to these sequence-based models and say that once we recognize that you could use sequence, these POTS models, to predict protein-protein contacts, we took another step and said, well, maybe we could learn something from these sequence-based models about, for a particular sequence, what confirmations does it prefer? Not just one confirmation, but uh, multiple confirmations. And we are using it to make some predictions and understand, in, in, the, in the case of these kinases, for a particular kinase protein, which of multiple states that it might be in would this particular sequence prefer? Because it needs to be in a certain state to be targeted by a certain inhibitor. And yeah. some contribution to understanding the binding can come from sequence-based methods, not just purely from structure-based methods. So just to give people a practical idea of what this might be important for, if you have a kinase that's really critical that upregulates the replication rate of a cell, that might be something that's contributing a lot to a cancer. And if you can come up with an inhibitor that jams in there and stops that protein from doing what it's doing to the cell, it can stop that replication right. growth. And and be a particularly if that particular kinase prefers, let's say, a confirmation that only a type 2 inhibitor can bind to, 
whereas another very similar kinase doesn't easily adopt that conformation. Some aspect of that we can learn from these sequence-based models. So I'm trying to integrate structure-based viewpoints and, and sequence-based viewpoints in this work on the kinases. On the other hand, for the, to bring us back to HIV, most of that work is, is really purely sequence-based. Yeah, yeah. But has the consequence that maybe we can understand how these things are evolving and perhaps uh, that will help us design mm -hmm. better treatments as well, right? Yes. Um, okay, great. So do you want to talk just a little bit about those? This is getting into sort of the, the deepest uh, uh, academic part, but how can you describe what these POTS models are actually doing? Like what are you actually tracking in order to understand uh, the interactions between these many, many different sites. Well, I, let, let, me, let me introduce it by just saying, statistically, this is a really hard problem in the sense that, right, if you talk about all these different sites and how each one interacts with another site, you end up with a very, very highly parameterized question of like how every site interacts with every site. And it can be really difficult to come up with a model that can capture all of that. So, so just with that, let, maybe you can just give a few words of like how... how uh, well, let me say a few works. words about... POTS models to say that, that, that they're also used by computer scientists for facial recognition. They're used for language recognition. Google is using them both for natural language recognition and also in biophysics uh, for pattern recognition related to protein folding. There's a, there's a whole group at Google that's working with these so-called POTS models and their extensions in, in machine learning. But the starting point is a so-called multiple sequence alignment. We have many sequences. Let's go back to HIV as the example and take HIV protease, which is a protein which has got a, a hundred amino acids long. And its role in HIV is to take something called the polyprotein because when HIV um, working units of proteins are transcribed, um, they come as one polyprotein that needs to be chopped up to make the individual proteins that the virus needs. And okay. it's this protease called HIV protease that does that chopping up. So if you can stop the chopping up, you stop it from acting. For right? sure. Great. And to build this so-called POTS model, we go to the Los Alamos database or the Stanford database. They're two independent databases. And we take publicly available sequences that have come from patients, and we line them up, if you will. Uh, one, one row has one sequence, and then right below it, the next row has the next sequence, and then right below it, the next row has the next sequence, and we have 10,000 of these or 15,000 of these. And then if we look down one column, we can count in that column which amino acid type appears the most frequently. And that one that appears most frequently would be considered to be part of the consensus sequence. And we can look down another column and see which amino acid type appears most commonly in that other column. And much of the analysis of the properties of HIV protease or other HIV proteins has proceeded from thinking about the problem as What's the com most common amino acid type at this position? What's the second most amino acid type? And does it cause problems for the catalytic efficiency of the enzyme or for drug resistance? But not thinking about what is the effect if I have a particular amino acid at this position, whether it might 
that effect might or might not depend on what's at another position. So when I look at the most common amino acid type at uh, position 10, and I look at the most common amino acid type at position 20, I can ask, what happens if I make a change to the position 10? Does that affect position 20 or not? Getting these statistics, if I look at just one column, that's the so-called univariate marginals of the multiple sequence alignment. If I look at them varying two at a time, that's the so-called bivariate marginal, okay? And that tells me something about the effect of one position on another position. The POTS model is a mathematical model that is built on fitting the pattern of the multiple sequence alignment bivariate marginals. So there are many parameters in this model, which has terms borrowed from the names in physics, but they have meaning in this biological context. The univariate terms are called fields, and the bivariate terms are called couplings by analogy with condensed matter physics, even though they don't have any kind of meaning in terms of magnetism or anything like that. <laughs> and our challenge is, given, for example, for protease, a multiple sequence alignment with 10,000 sequences, we have bivariate marginals for 10 times 99 over 2 possible bivariate marginals. Um, and our model needs to reproduce those bivariate marginals. This is a hard computational problem. Um, there are many approximate ways to solve this, but you give up something when you use these approximate ways. And, and we use a more laborious, computationally intensive way. And in order to get the answer to this problem in a very reasonable amount of time, um, we use, we've programmed this solution to the problem on a graphical processor units, GPUs. Oh, okay, so uh, some uh, technological uh, development too, not just yes. uh, coding, but actually hard, hard, hardware that yes. you can so especially this, useful this, for. We solved this problem on GPUs. Um, we couldn't solve the problem the way we do it without using GPUs. And in the end, and we do solve the problem, we fit the bivariate marginals. Now, getting that right just means that our algorithm is working properly. We're not predicting anything. Okay? Yeah. But then we ask, well, what about three at a time, four at a time, five at a time? Our model function only has fit terms up to two. Mm -hmm. And what we have shown in a variety of technical papers, not that paper, but a variety of technical papers, um, is that all you need is to fit terms up to second order to get many, many higher order properties of the system. And I want to give as an example from the paper you refer to, eLife, that came out this year or last year, is using this POTS model as a classifier. One of the things we know about for, for any of these proteins, protease, integrase, reverse transcriptase, it tends to be um, that when you accumulate mutations, you stabilize drug resistance mutations. Now, I want to introduce the word entrenchment because we use the word in the paper. Yes, in the title. Uh, uh, yes, yes. And I want to say something about entrenchment. Okay. Uh, what it means is when you initially have a drug resistance, resistance mutation, that's not good for the virus and it's not good for the protein. And in, in order for it to stay in the population, it needs to do something. Uh, uh, it needs to have other compensatory mutations. 
And you could think that, you know, the more mutations you have, the more you stabilize. And in some cases, to some extent, that's, that's true. Um, the drug resistance mutation. However, what we showed in that paper is it's not just the number of mutations. If we, if you look at drug experienced uh, population for protease, let's take as an example, the typical number of mutations in the population away from the consensus protease sequence is something on the order of 15. So you can take a slice of um, sequences, of which there are many, many, many sequences, between 12 mutations, let's say, and 18 mutations. And to verify the predictive power of this POTS model, we classified those sequences that have a large number of mutations into two classes. Those that we were predicting stabilize or entrench the drug-resistant mutation and other ones which do not. Okay. I see. So we then took all of these thousands of sequences which have between 12 and 18 mutations away from the consensus, put them in two buckets, and said, we're going to predict how many drug resistance mutations we have in bucket one and in bucket two. And in the sequences that we were predicting that are entrenched, there were many drug resistance mutations, but the ones that were destabilizing uh, had very few drug resistance mutations. And it's not something that you could predict just based on the number of mutations. So this yeah. this, this was something, and it is essential for understanding like what directions exactly. it evolves in that give you the resistance exactly. and what evol what are dead ends, and that could be really critical. For exactly. Therapy. And let me go to one more sort of aspect of this because you, you and we, we all come back to, you know, we think of evolution. Something's changing over time, and we're yeah. very very interested in that. But I want to because I'm, there's something that just happened in my lab in the last two, three weeks, which I'm excited about, related to this that I want to tell Excellent. you a little bit about. So we're parameterizing a model from sequences that have been collected from the population that are drug naive and drug experienced. One of the things we want to know, of course, is what's the time evolution by which we can get from the drug naive population to the drug experienced population. And one of the things that will help us solve that is deep sequencing, and we're partnering with our collaborator uh, at Scripps, um, Bruce Torbett, on some very, very wonderful data that he is collecting through his collaborations on people in time, that for which they've tagged in time, uh, went from the time they started taking various drugs, what's evolving in the population in their body. But I, I want to get to something else that I find kind of interesting. and, and uh, This is what happened in your lab in the last couple of weeks. Yes. And that is the following. We have the drug experience data and we have the drug naive data. And there's two possible ways we could think of that so-called entrenching sequences that, are, um, that, that enable drug resistance mutations to survive come to be in the population. One is they're already in the drug-naive population uh, in, in, in very small, small frequency, but they're already there. Another possibility is, no, they're not there. You need to have additional mutational events. Even if it's the same number of mutations, they have to mutate to those um, set of mutations that are entrenching. If we look at 
the drug experience population and the drug naive population, we can see many sequences that are apparently in the drug experience population, but not in the so-called drug naive population. And I pose this as two possible alternatives for how you get to drug experience. It's already in the population at very small frequency, but that's actually hard to see in Los Alamos and hard to see in Stanford database. And the other possibility is they're not there at all, that you need further mutations, okay? We now believe over, uh, from work we've done in the last three weeks, both routes to entrenchment are being used. But the cute thing about this that I wanna get to is that this problem involves saying something about two states of the system, the drug naive state and the drug experience state, and saying something about what's the likelihood of seeing a sequence that I have observed in the drug experience state because it's entrenching. What's the likelihood I would see that in the drug naive state? I may not be able to see that directly. I have to do some kind of statistical analysis. And that brought us to some technique that we've been using for years and helped develop but it was been developed by many other people too, called reweighting techniques in a certain class of simulations that involve running different models of the system and asking questions about the likelihood of seeing observations in one model that uh, in, in, in another model of the system. I'm trying to avoid using the word potential functions, but <laughs> I shouldn't avoid that. Um, the, the, this is called free energy simulations. Uh, and it has, they're being used to understand the strength of binding. It's a techniques of, from statistical physics and statistical mechanics. But this very same, te same technique that we've been using in this other area, we realized was applicable to making inferences about the nature of sequences that are easily seen in the drug experience population. What's the likelihood of seeing them in the drug naive population? And it's giving us insights into these pathways to resistance and routes to resistance. And I'm happy to see this field that I've been working in involving molecular simulations using certain techniques in this uh, allied field or this parallel field of evolution of yeah. sequences. And uh, it's kind of coming together in a way that I find very satisfying. Well, that's great. I'm so glad to hear. That's a great wrap-up in the sense that we're both talking about convergence of different fields and how they all can illuminate each other. But also, we've spanned all the way from early 80s through this paper in eLife and then now to what happened in the last couple of weeks in your lab. So uh, very exciting science is going on. I'm so excited to hear about it. I'm excited to talk to you a little bit more about uh, your science and actually hear a seminar later today that you're going to give. And uh, thanks very much for coming, Ron. It was a delight to have you on the podcast. Yeah, it was a delight to be here. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.